Hello, and thank you for joining us on Building Greatness the Warrior Way, a Westcliff University Athletics podcast. As always, I'm joined by our Dean of Athletics, Sean Harris. Yay, yay. And I'm Sherm Dog, David Shermet, the head baseball coach at Westcliff University. Well, for all the listeners out there, thank you once again for joining us for a very special podcast. Sean will be along momentarily. In the meantime, we have a very well-traveled and uh, distinguished gentleman joining us as our guest today, Mr. Jamal Sylvester. Jamal, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, it's always a pleasure to have on uh, folks such as yourself who have as much experience in a variety of things. You've got a, a basketball background, you've got a motivational speaking background, and a few other things. Before we get into all that, uh, and we're going to delve into your history because you have a very unique history and some of the things that took place along the way. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your upbringing and uh, how it is that you've come to this point in your life? All righty. Uh, well, uh, initially, I, I'm a product of Chicago, Illinois. Uh, I was born and raised uh, on the west side of Chicago. So uh, I've dealt with the drugs, the violence, the gangs. Uh, my father, uh, unfortunately, went to prison uh, at an early age. And so I quickly, like so many, uh, became the man of the house. Uh, and a lot of times we're ushered into that position, but we're not ready. We're not equipped. Uh, but we play the position because uh, as the oldest, uh, you know, you, now you become mom's support. Uh, and so I did that. Uh, life was was hard. Uh, we struggled. Uh, and uh, as I got older, uh, I began to, of course, get into trouble because as kids, you know, of course, we love fun. But sometimes we, we, we tap into bad fun. And so I began to to get into trouble. And my mom. Uh, decided to send me to South Bend, Indiana, to my father's uh, sister. Uh, and that's where it all started for me as far as athletics. Uh, when I was in Chicago, football was it, because Walter Payton, sweetness, everybody wanted to be Walter Payton or Willie Gott. Uh, and so football was it for me. But when I moved to Indiana, uh, I had to I had to change games. Uh, and I picked up the basketball and uh, once I picked it up, uh, I fell in love with it, and uh, we began a relationship. And as that relationship grew, it afforded me some opportunities uh, to 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 do some great things. Uh, I was nominated to be an Indiana All-Star, uh, which next to being uh, Indiana's Mr. Basketball is probably uh, one of the most prestigious awards that you could win in the state of Indiana. Uh, they only picked 12 out of the entire state, and I was chosen to be one of them. Uh, and so that also afforded me some looks. Uh, I had originally signed to go to Kansas State, uh, came home. Uh, may he rest in peace. Uh, Coach Rick Majerus called me in the wee hours of the night. I had never set foot in Muncie, Indiana. I didn't know anything about Ball State, uh, but just his uh, passion and his uh, charisma uh, over the phone. I was like, I'm signing. I'm coming. They had just played. In the NCAA tournament, went to the Sweet 16. It was the only close game that uh, the eventual champion in 1990, UNLV, it was the closest game that they had in the entire tournament. And so I'm like, okay, I, I think I want to be a part of this because they were bringing a lot of people back. It was close to home. I felt like my family would be able to see me, friends, signing with the Ball State. Uh, and I was immature, and, and I wasn't ready. I was ready athletic-wise as far as game and being able to play. 
but mentally I wasn't prepared or ready for that academic rigor or the expectations of being uh, quote unquote a student athlete. Uh, and I struggled, uh, I sat, I watched a lot. Uh, I skipped classes because I wasn't playing and my, and my young immature mind, I thought that, okay, then coach, you're not gonna play me, that's fine, I'm not going to class. And I didn't realize that that wasn't gonna help. And so I suffered, I got suspended for four games. Uh, and, you know, it just continued. Uh, and uh, those mistakes, those obstacles, those hurdles, uh, while I didn't enjoy any of them, uh, I've always had a unique ability uh, for whatever has happened in my life. Uh, I used to say that I bounce back, and typically people would define that as the definition of resiliency. But I redefined uh, resiliency a few years ago. And for me, the, uh, the definition of resiliency is not to bounce back, but it's to bounce forward. Uh, and that's why I've been able to overcome those obstacles and get me to the place where I am now, where uh, I'm a number one Amazon best-selling author. Uh, I'm a well-traveled motivational speaker. Uh, I work with young people, uh, you know, providing them with opportunities uh, in my professional role and just helping them see that uh, your current situation doesn't have to determine uh, your future destination. And so uh, that's where I'm at. And, uh, you know, that's why I'm on the show. And so I hope that I can help the listeners out there uh, touch someone or at least uh, provoke uh, thought uh, about where they're at, where they want to be and how to get there. Okay. Um, that's a lot of information. And you know something? <laughs> no, listening to you speak, and I I've read your background, uh, your history, that seems like it's just scratching the iceberg. You know, that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's <laughs> There's so much more to you. I know, it, you know, if you were to speak in detail about your life's history, it would take most of the day. You just have a, a lot of great stuff. Um, and, um, you know, one of the questions I have is you had mentioned you had a difficult upbringing as a child. Uh, your mm -hmm. father went to prison. You became the man of the house. You had to uh, grow up very quickly, which is difficult to do. You know, there was a there's a spot, obviously, now where you're just killing it. Everything you're doing, you're doing it well. You've got your life on the right path. You learned a lot of lessons along the way. Was there one moment in time? You can look back and say, that was the moment where I set myself on the right path, coming off the wrong path. Kind of like that aha moment, I guess you might say. Do you remember a moment like that? Uh, I do. Uh, and it, it, it was it was basketball. Uh I remember going out for basketball my freshman year. I knew I wasn't good, but you know how you have all of your friends and everybody's talking about going out. And so I'm like, you know what? Forget it. I, I, I'll go to tryouts with y'all. And, and I'll never forget. I was going up for a layup and uh, I, I tried to finger roll and I put a whole bunch of English on it and I missed. And I'll never forget uh, one of the coaches who was at the tryouts like he ripped me up one side and down the other. And he told me, that's not how you shoot a layup, uh, especially when you're a newcomer to the game. Uh, and he wanted me to do the old school two hand, you know, take your two steps and shoot it. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. That doesn't look appealing to me. Uh, and I remember leaving that tryout and I didn't return. Uh, not so much because I didn't think I could do it, but I didn't like, uh, how it felt for someone to critique me and tell me that I wasn't good at something. And, you uh, when you're young, typically we kind of lean towards those things that we're good at. Uh, but I had a conversation uh, with, with, with someone uh, in my neighborhood and uh, they told me that pressure bust pipes, either 
uh, pressure does two things, either it busts pipes or it creates diamonds. And uh, right now you have to make a decision, either you're going to quit and, 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 and what happens when you quit, it, it builds up your muscle to quit. And so if you keep quitting, then you'll be known as a quitter. And I don't think you're a quitter. I just think that you received that in a way that uh, you took it the wrong way. And because you're young and you're immature, you heard it wrong. What he was really saying was, hey, kid, I see something. Maybe you need to do this because it starts with fundamentals. And I didn't have any fundamentals. I just kind of ran out on the court. I was tall. I was fast. I could jump. And I thought that everything would work out. And that wasn't the case. But when I went back, uh, he smiled and winked at me when I showed back up because I think that that's ultimately what he wanted to see. Like, OK, let me see if I can come down on this kid and see what he does. And I came back and I think that it was in that moment that, hey, I think I fit. I think I belong uh, and I think I want to be a part of this. And, and, and then just having other coaches like that and other people in my neighborhood who supported, who encouraged me, uh, who challenged me uh, that if I wanted to be great, not only just watching Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and Larry Bird and Magic Johnson and all of those people, I had stars and heroes in my neighborhood, Ricky King, Larry King. Uh, man, it was so many guys that was in my neighborhood, Dale Young, uh, Andre Owens, Eric Ford. These were phenomenal players in my neighborhood uh, that uh, they may not have had the NBA success, but they were hood superstars and hood heroes. And so I had people that I looked up to and people who I wanted to emulate. And so it just only made me uh, desire uh, to be great and want to work hard, you know, at perfecting my craft. Sure. Um, you know, there are two meccas now you you mentioned your neighborhood and some of the some of the guys you looked up to there uh there are two meccas of playground basketball one's new york and, and one is chicago and they kind of have a friendly rivalry i guess you might say they each like to claim the the crown of uh the best of playhood or uh, play school you know uh, basketball <laughs> playground were you part of the chicago playground basketball scene with all those guys I've got to play in some of those games uh, because I've transitioned to Indiana. Uh, there was a time where I almost moved back uh, to Chicago going into my senior year. My mom had moved out to Maywood, Illinois, and I actually would have been on a team with, uh, uh, I think it's uh, uh, it was Proviso East, I believe, but Michael Finley, mm. uh, Sherelle Ford, Donnie Boyce. All of these guys went on. I believe they're starting five. All of them went D1. Uh, and I would have played uh, at that school. Uh, but I had spent so much time uh, with my teammates and, and being in South Bend, I felt like, you know, that would that would be uh, unloyal. Uh, and and, and uh, it just wouldn't be good. Uh, and it wouldn't feel good to lead those guys after we all of the work that we had put in. And so I just stayed in Indiana. And so I would get up there and play in some of the summer games. And I had family and friends who uh, would have teams and I would go up, but I, I didn't play. I can't, I can't say that I was there constantly playing in that. Uh, but I can't say that the runs in South Bend were any less uh, because I would even venture off to go to Bear Harbor and play uh, in games. Elkhart, I played against the likes of Sean Kemp and, uh, Pig Miller, uh, Anthony Miller, who played at Michigan yeah. State up in Bear Harbor. Uh -huh. And so I still have my share of uh, a great playground basketball runs. I'm sure. Um, goodness. You know, Indiana might also is one of the meccas of basketball, college basketball in particular. I think Larry Bird helped with French Lick and, and all of a sudden the rise of Indiana basketball. And he played at Indiana State. You know, he didn't play it yeah. at IU. Now, 
to jump ahead a little bit okay. with your background because you did have the opportunity to play professional basketball in a variety of leagues around the world. Is that right? Yes, sir. Okay. And tell us a little bit about your travels. I was, uh, after my college career, uh, Things didn't go as planned. Uh, of course, my ultimate goal was to go to the NBA. Uh, but because of some decisions, and I'm sure we'll get into it, some decisions that I made uh, while in college, uh, it kind of took me out of uh, that, that, that spotlight or that opportunity. And so now I had to look at the potential of uh, either playing in the CBA or going overseas. And after about a year of kind of star tracking and trying to figure out, you know, is basketball going to be in my future? Uh, I was able, you know, to get a phone call and get an opportunity to go play in Bordeaux, France, uh, which was was crazy. Uh, the only other time that I had left home for a long period of time was uh, playing AAU basketball and traveling. And when I left to go to Ball State, which was only two and a half hours away, now I'm 13 hours away. Uh, I don't speak the language. I don't know anything about the culture. Uh, and uh, while I love basketball, it was very difficult uh, to, to be by myself. It was really the first time that I was by myself. Uh, and it was alone. That first month, it felt like six months. Uh, I was calling home eight, nine times a day uh, just to talk to somebody in English because there was only one channel that was in English. And that was Formula Formula One, actually it was two. It was CNN and Formula One racing. And it, it, it was rough. Uh, but I, I'm thankful for that, uh, being 49 now and, you know, going through, through the things that I've gone through. I'm so thankful that God allowed me uh, to do that uh, and go through that because uh, there was a time where I called my Nana. Uh, she's no longer with us. And I said, uh, Mom, I'm coming home. And she said, baby, come home to what? Like, you left nothing. So you're over there, you're making $3,000 a month playing a game that you love. You don't have to pay rent. Like food is, you know, you can eat as much as you want. Like come home to what? And I'm like, you know what, Nana, you're right. But let me figure this out. And I stayed my butt over there and I ended up, uh, I was the leading scorer uh, for the Americans. Uh, I probably ended up second or third overall. I averaged 36 points a game. Uh, they were calling me the Michael Jordan of Bordeaux. Uh, it was great. Uh, I did what I was supposed to do. Uh, that afforded me an opportunity uh, to go to uh, Argentina. I went over to Argentina. Unfortunately, uh, when you're dealing with professional sports and you have agents, uh, when you don't know what you don't know, uh, you allow people to speak for you. You allow people to kind of uh, negotiate. Uh, and my agent at the time uh, told his team that I was 16, 280 pounds. And so when I got off the plane, they were looking for somebody else to get off the plane. And they're like, man, did you lose height and weight? I'm like, <laughs> no. <laughs> like, I'm like, no, this is what I do. This is me. Uh, and so, uh, excuse me? How tall are you? I'm 6'7". Okay. Yeah. Right. So it, it was close, but they were, ultimately, they were looking for a big. I was able to play in a few yeah. games with them. They loved my game, but they were like, and I knew it. Just seeing the makeup of the team, you know, we struggled with the games that I played in because we didn't have any size. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I got it. Uh, and they, you know, afforded me an opportunity. Uh, they respected me uh, and loved my game enough that they sent me to another team in Buenos Aires. Uh, and I got there. But funds, the money wasn't right. 
And so I went back home, uh, which led to me going over to Singapore. I played in Singapore. Uh, I averaged 36 points, 15 rebounds. Uh, played against a guy who played on the Taiwanese national team, who I gave him 42, 16 boards and 12 assists. Uh, he was like, what are you doing after this season? <laughs> I said, nothing going home. He said, would you come to Taiwan? I'm like, man, what, what the money looking like? He said, $10,000 a month. Yes, I'll sign right now. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we did negotiate it, talked about that, uh, got that contract signed, and I ended up breaking my kneecap two weeks before it was time for me to leave to yeah. go to Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And so I never played professional basketball again, with an exception of a, a stint of uh, a friend of mine, Damon Bethea, that played at, at Michigan State, had a semi-pro team in Elkhart called the Elkhart Express. Uh, and we played an exhibition game against them and I scored over 30 points. And so he was like, man, would you come, you know, you know, on the team and play? And so I went and did that for a short stint, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't nothing that I pursued a uh, long term because for me, I felt like it was going backwards. Okay. What position did you play? Were you a small forward or did you handle or where'd they have you playing? You, we got to talk about when and where. Oh, okay. uh, when I was in college, I played shooting guard, small forward, power forward, overseas, shooting guard, small forward. Uh, but as my game progressed, uh, because most people say that I became a better player after my injury because I had to begin to think the game. I was always faster. I could jump higher. All of those things, you know, uh, helped me uh, be better than most. Uh, but uh, when I had my injury, I still loved the game and I still wanted to play, but I had to play it below the rim. Uh, and so uh, I, now I understand why people give Larry Bird his props uh, about not being this great athletic player, but he could play uh, because I had to learn how to play the game below the rim. And uh, so for me uh, now is I play every position wherever you need me. Uh, I'm not a uh, I, I I train myself to become a positionless uh, basketball player. I, I'm just a basketball player. You put me on the court, I'll do whatever needs to be done. Do you still run? I do. You do? I do. I work out every day, uh, four to five days a week. I shoot for an hour. Uh, I live for an hour uh, because I still love the game. And for me, that's my self care. Uh, people have music. They do yoga. Uh, they do, you know, music, whatever. For me, it's basketball because I still love the game. It still run deep, deep through my veins. And so I still have to have some form of fashion uh, of the game of basketball in my life. Sure. And it probably will always be in your life. I mean, you've built Absolutely. your life. You know, I want to I want to switch gears a little bit here and talk about uh, two incidents in your life that changed mm-hmm. things at the time, but ultimately set you on the path to where you are now. Um, you're, you're crazy successful right now. Uh, that might not have been the case after these incidents where you had uh, not just a difference of opinion with a couple of teammates, but things got a little bit physical. Yep. And because of that, what happened afterward with your suspensions or what happened changed your life radically. And so uh, I know you look back on those and it's hard to say, well, you know, I, I, I'm thankful that those things happened because it got me to where I am now. That's probably partly true. But can you talk a little bit about each of those instances? Uh, tell our listeners a little bit about what happened to you because uh, you had the whole world in your hands one moment and then the next moment, everything changed. Man, it was, <laughs> I remember it like it was yesterday uh, and I'm smiling now uh, because of time, uh, time and maturity and 
uh, being able to accept responsibility uh, for my actions in it. Uh, but during it, uh, it was it was hell for me. Uh, I was 27th in the nation in scoring. Uh, I was averaging about 23-7 a game uh, with the likes of people like Glenn Robinson and uh, uh, Kurt, uh, with Kurt Thomas, who played for the Miami Heat. Like there were some Jalen Rose was on this list. Uh, here I'm at, at Ball State and I put everything in my NBA basket and I'm like, okay, this is coming to fruition. Uh, but what happened was my first three seasons, we averaged 20 plus wins a season. Going into my senior year, while I'm scoring all of these points, we were losing and it wasn't a fun feeling. And so we had a practice where, you know how things get heated uh, and they get overheated. Uh, and I lost, I lost control. Uh, my emotions got the best of me. Uh, I punched my teammate. Uh, at that time, I'm like, man, this is nothing. We would average two or three fights a year the previous years, but we had a new coach. I get it. I'm the best player on the team. Uh, he had to make an example or he had to set an example. Uh, and he sent me home uh, to South Bend and uh, told me, don't call pretty much. Don't call me. We'll call you. And anybody that's ever heard that or been told about that know that typically you're probably not going to get a call back. And so I had some people back home, uh, Charles Martin, may rest in peace, uh, and, and some other uh, community advocates. Uh, they advocated for me. They got me back in school. But things changed uh, for me uh, because now in, my, in the back of my mind, I'm like, hey, I punched this guy. Is he going to want to get his lick back? Because for me, I would want to get my lick back. And so now I got to keep my eye. I got to keep my head on the swivel. Like, I can't let him sneak me or uh, that wasn't the case. He uh Years after he told me that he forgave me, uh, two days after it happened, I didn't know that. Uh, but uh, in my head and where I come from, I'm like, no, he going to want his lick back. And so just trying to play basketball and still be a teammate, knowing that my teammates, what I found was my, my teammates voted me off the team. Uh, and so it wasn't just my coach's decision. My teammates voted. They had a meeting. They voted me off. And I'm like, these are guys who I went into the trenches with, I battled with, I fought with. And then to hear that they were the reason why I was off the team, it hurt. And so now I'm kind of like, yeah, I want to play, but I don't want to play with y'all. And so uh, I was able to salvage my senior year and still become a first-team all-conference player, but my stats suffered. Uh, I dropped from 23 to 16 points. Uh, I was able to keep my rebounds and, and those things up, but uh, I struggled. And even after that punch, you would have thought that I would have learned my lesson, but maybe – 35, 40 days uh, after that punch, uh, I was in the gym. I was a gym rat and still is. Uh, I was in the gym playing with some friends uh, and we we're just playing some pickup ball. And my friends, of course, you know, they can't dunk. So they always wanted, you know, me to dunk. And my nickname is Silk. And so they were like, Silk, Silk, do a 360. And I'm about to get ready and go up to do the 360. And a guy that's on the other team sprinted down court found me hard. I'm like, you know, hey, man, chill out. Like, you know what I mean? It ain't even that serious. Uh, I got a game Saturday on ESPN, and he like, I don't care who you are. Or So it let me know that he knew who I was, and he knew that I was on the team. And so that was a red flag for me. I should have left then, but I stayed, and I wish I wouldn't have because we played some more, and it's game point, and I'm going up for another dunk, and he does the same thing. And I muffed him. He turned his hat backwards. I got a short fuse, or at least I had a short fuse. I punched him, but this this punch differed from my teammate. 
because this was a regular student. Uh, he sued me in the university. Uh, I, I just a couple of years ago was able to go back to Ball State and talk to our sports information guy. And I actually have the article where I was sued for a million dollars. He sued me for a million dollars and sued uh, Ball State for a million dollars. And so those two punches changed my whole trajectory of my life because the first punch put a damper on my NBA dreams. The second punch put a damper on just my life in general because uh, I also had an aggravated battery and an aggravated assault charge. Uh, and I did what any young person would, would do uh, at, at that moment. I ran. And so I quit school uh, immediately. Uh, I had a, a very close uh, family member, my cousin, my workout buddy, my partner in crime, Thomas, uh, Thomas Henderson, uh, senior, uh, junior, uh, may you rest in peace. Uh, and I had him come get me in the middle of the night and I left school uh, without completing my degree, uh, without withdrawing from classes. I didn't tell my teammates who I was living in an apartment with. I just left because I was scared and I thought that I would be going to prison and that's uh, not where I wanted to be. And so uh, that just caused me to, you know, live a life of a bunch of mess ups and hiccups and obstacles. And uh, it, it was rough. Uh, uh, but uh, as I said earlier on, uh, I'm thankful for my struggles because without them, I wouldn't know my strengths. Uh, if I could go back and do it all over again, would I do it right? Absolutely. Uh, but uh, there is no such thing as a hot tub time machine. So I can't get it in and go back and correct those things. And so I have to deal with what was done. Uh, but uh, uh, as you said, uh, uh, I, I didn't like any of that uh, because that wasn't who I was. Uh, you know, when you're you have these big dreams and these aspirations of, of having a phenomenal career or being a great basketball player or football player, you leave home. You don't want to go back home with DMPs or uh, you don't dress or the rest or just all of those things that come with collegiate sports. Uh, because you got family and friends who are not always kind. And so when you come home, oh, they laughing, they cracking jokes. That's hard to deal with and it's stressful. And so uh, all of those things, I had to deal with those things because you carry your town, your city, your family uh, on top of the dreams and aspirations that you had. You carry all of those things on your back. And I took all of those things to Muncie with me and I shouldn't have. I should have just went, go, be the best that you can be do all that you can and then let the chips fall where they may. And I allow all of those things and trying to, to uh, live up to all of those expectations, as well as the expectations of the university and the Ball State basketball team. It's rough. That's, that was my first real job. And I didn't know that until I wasn't playing anymore. Uh, you don't recognize that uh, because we're playing basketball, but that scholarship was X amount of dollars. I'm not sure what, a typical year, you know, your uh, scholarship would be worth at any university. But, you know, for me now, I understand that, man, that was my first job. And so they have an expectation and I was supposed to show up to work and I was supposed to bring my A game. And while I brought my A game in certain areas, I didn't bring it in every area. And I didn't know because nobody taught me in high school or before that, that this is how you go to college and be successful. One out of four freshmen go back home, not because uh, they some of it is homesick, but most of it is because you're ill-prepared to take on everything that comes with being a successful student athlete. Mm, that's a very good point. Yeah, you know, in the interim, because now you're very successful and you went on to get your degree. Yep. 
So how did that come about? Because you left school, you didn't go to class, you, you failed all those classes, you kind of dropped out of sight for a while, and then you kind of resurface, you refocus yourself, you decide to go back to school. How long was that? Was that a year? Was that 10 years? What was, what was the time frame in there? 24 years. Between the time you left after the second incident and the time you decided to go back to school and get your degree was 24 years. Well, overall, I'm a three-time college dropout. Uh, I, I, I went back to school in 2005. I'm like, okay, uh, I, I think I need to go back and finish this. I had uh, some mentors and you know people that I looked up to who would talk to me about, hey, if you're going to get into this career field, you probably need to get your degree, so you need to go back. Took a couple of classes. Life happened. I quit. Uh, and as I said earlier on, once you start quitting, you can just like you can become good at dribbling or your shot or whatever it is that you're working on. The same goes for those negative things that you do. So once you quit and then you quit three or four times, quitting becomes easy. And so I, it was easy for me to quit in 2005. I signed back up for classes in 2011. Life happened again. I quit again. Uh, and it didn't happen. It really didn't happen for me until I moved to Indianapolis in 2016. I ended up getting a job uh, with a company called Employee Indy. Uh, and as I'm on my way to work, I would ride past the NCA headquarters. And I'm looking and I'm like, okay. And every day I would get stopped at the light where I can look at that building, like for the length of the light. I'm, okay, God, what are you trying to tell me? What are you, what are you telling me? And then I remember that there was a, a NCAA Division I degree completion program. They have it for Division II and Division III, but I knew about the Division I, uh, and I applied. And I got it first time. Uh, they paid for everything. They paid for my tuition books. I, uh, I applied uh, at, at Ball State with some help from uh, the current president, President Merns. Uh, he did something that I know not a lot of people would do. He didn't know me from Adam, but I was able to have a, a sit down with him and we had a one-on-one -on -one and I shared my story. I shared my mistakes. I shared how I've learned from those mistakes and what I'm doing with those mistakes and how I'm helping young people and helping athletes, current and future uh, uh, athletes. Uh, and he said, you know what I'll do for you? I'll lift the whole, old ball state $9,000. Uh, and that, that two-year, three-year dropout, of course, like most young kids, man, we apply for credit cards. We apply for loans. I didn't know what I was doing. And so I owed Ball State $9,000. And in order for me to sign up for classes, I had to have a zero balance. And he lifted the hole to allow me to sign up for classes. Uh, and I signed up. Uh, I was able to, in December 2017, start my classes. I completed those classes. Uh, and I walked July 2018. Uh, the two semesters that I, I did classes, I had a 4.0 GPA because I wanted to prove uh, to myself, to my children, but to those people who had taken the time to help me, uh, all of those people in the financial aid office, all of the people at the NCAA who read my, uh, my, my scholarship uh, essay, all of those people who uh, allowed me this opportunity. I wanted to show them that I appreciated them as well as those people who had been encouraging me all of those 24 years of telling me like, man, you can do this. It's, it's not hard because school was never hard for me. Uh, I, it was, for me, it was about what was interesting to me. Uh, and, you know, being an uh, adult learner, 
uh, you understand what's important. And I knew that I didn't, I couldn't afford to not take care of business. Uh, and so I went in it with a different mindset while working a full-time job, while speaking, while mentoring and doing all of those things, I was able to carry a 4.0 GPA uh, for both semesters and be on the Dean's list. Uh, and so when I walked across that stage, uh, for graduation, I had my graduation on the very floor that I played on. Uh, and so that was uh, super sweet uh, for me. And I didn't walk across the stage. I glided across the stage because I know everything that I had to overcome to get to that place. Uh, and it was a phenomenal feeling. That is quite a story. Um, and after all of this success, uh, finally, in the classroom, you got your degree. You also have another nickname, you know, obviously Silk. And, yep. you know, uh, and now you've got <coughs> me too, right? Yep. You've got Mr. Me too. Uh, so yes, it's sir. Jamal Silk, Mr. Me too, Sylvester. How did you come by that name? Cause I want to talk a little bit about the work you do now with the, with maybe disadvantaged youth and the motivational speaking that you do and the books that you write. How did you get the Mr. Me too moniker? During, during the travels, uh, those 24 years, uh, I had a family. And so I had to take care of my family. So I had to get a job. Uh, and I was when I was my last year at Ball State, I was in criminology. And so I kind of liked it uh, at that time, which was 1994. They said that it was a, a high ceiling, you know, in it. And so I said, well, I got some experience in it. I kind of know about it. Uh, and I tried to find something that I like that would give me the same joy uh, that basketball gave me uh, once I couldn't play uh, sports anymore. Uh, and it was always helping people, but more importantly, young people. Uh, and so I began uh, working. I worked as a mental health technician for a place called Madison Center for Children uh, with, with adolescent youth uh, who uh, might have been suffering from uh, bipolar disorder or ADHD or uh, some of those uh, uh, types of disorders. Uh, and uh, that work uh, allowed me or afforded me an opportunity to go work in the Department of Corrections. And this is really where I kind of begin to get that Mr. Me Too moniker, because as I'm working with these these young kids and they're telling me their story. And for me, uh, I'm a very empathetic person, but I know how that if you if you can become over or if you're too over, uh, over empathetic with people, uh, you allow them to stay stuck uh, in whatever it is that they're struggling with. And so while I can empathize uh, with their struggles or with whatever they were going through, I always found a way to hold them accountable and I, I didn't let them off the hook. And so they would be sharing their stories uh, of, man, I grew up without my dad, gangs, my mom on drugs, just all of these different things. And I would say, guess what? Me too. And hmm. so if I can do it, you can too. Now you're going to have, it's going to take a lot of hard work, but you're going to have to recreate your support system and your support system. Uh, what I learned is it, it's not necessarily always going to be your family. And so I would help them through those things. Uh, and I went on and worked in adult corrections. And it was the same thing, no matter how old. Guys were 55, 60 years old, and they were calling me big bro, not because I was six, seven, but because of the wisdom that I was able to share and how I was able to enlighten them uh, during their stints while they were locked up and, and how I helped them navigate the criminal justice system, but prepare them so that when they got out, they stayed out. And so that's where it came from. And I just took it and ran with it. And for me, I felt like putting the mister on it because I felt like I earned that. Uh, 49 years of struggling. I haven't always did it right and I haven't always did it wrong. Uh, but 
because I've uh, I've shared this story enough that I'm confident and I'm comfortable enough to to flash people and show them my spots and talk about my downfalls. A lot of times people only want to talk about the good. Uh, and I know that my lived experiences, uh, if they can help somebody, even if it's just one person, uh, not have to go through a lot of the things that I went through, I think that then what I went through uh, uh, wasn't in vain. Hmm. Why, don't, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the impact of influence? So I have a book. Uh, you can see my background, uh, but I'll, I'll hold it up as well. <laughs> Good. Okay. Uh, I have it with me. Uh, it's a book that uh, my brother, uh, man, athletics uh, is is it's a great uh, it's the great connector. Uh, no matter what sport you play, all of us know that struggle and they know to go through and they know you know that 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 just that grind of being an athlete, whether it's swimming, softball, baseball, basketball, football. We all know that like the tour days and just all that comes with that. And so Chip Baker uh, is a guy that I met uh, through social media uh, because of COVID. Uh, and we connected on social media and we built a relationship. Uh, he has a podcast called The Success Chronicles. It's a phenomenal podcast where he's interviewed people from Carl Lewis uh, to Andy Pettit uh, to just all types of people uh, from every uh, walk of life. Uh, and we built a brotherhood. Uh, and during COVID, I began to start writing my own book and he would call me every day. How's the book coming? And I'm like, you know, in the beginning, I was writing every day. I'm like, man, it's going good. You know, I wrote a couple hours. And then after about five or six months in, man, life happened. Uh, my job uh, began to have a greater expectation. I began speaking more and I, I started writing less. Uh, and he knew it because it would be crickets when he would ask me. And then he came up with this opportunity. He said, hey, bro, uh, I got an opportunity for you. I think, you know, it's something that you should take advantage of. And I'm like, OK, well, he's like, man, it's a book. I'm like, hey, man, I, I really ain't got time. He was like, no, no, hear me out. He said, it's only a chapter. I'm like, OK, talk a little bit more. He said twenty five hundred words or less. Hey, I want you to be a part of it. It's going to be a collaborative book. Uh, it'll be 16. Uh, so it's a total of 17 of us with Chip being, you know, the lead author. Uh, and this six, 17 phenomenal men. And each of us either write about a situation or situations or a person that's either impacted or influenced our life. Uh, and that's what it's about, man. It, it's been great. It's been a phenomenal ride. Uh, we had a book tour. Uh, the final stop was uh, this week. In San Antonio, I wasn't able to attend because of commitments for my job, uh, but it, it's been a, a phenomenal ride. I never, uh, no one that knows me, family or friend, can tell you that I woke up uh, or I ever had a conversation with them about being an author, let alone the number one Amazon bestselling author. And so uh, it's, it's been a great experience. It's reinvigorated me, it's enthused me, and it's gotten me back ignited to complete my book which is titled Dream Another Dream, where I'll go in depth about who I am, my my lived experiences, but it's more so a self-help book where I talk about my experience, but I'm mainly talking about how I got out of my experience. And then I have some questions and some, some notes, a uh, note section where people will actually, as they read, they'll actually get the help 
themselves get out of whatever scenario or situation that they're in. So by the end of the book, you'll be, if you're stuck, you're going to be unstuck. And so uh, what I've learned is uh, while I had an NBA dream and for about two years, I was depressed. Uh, I was drinking, uh, popping Darvisek, smoking marijuana, because I was like, it's over. This is all that I'm supposed to do. This is all I wanted to do. And uh, then uh, I had a a one-on-one with God. And he made me realize that that's not the only dream that I gave. Uh, And so uh, my book is called Dream Another Dream. And I know that there's a lot of people out there that life life has given you a curveball. Things didn't go the way that you thought. It doesn't mean that it's over because we've all had multiple dreams. And those dreams made us laugh and smile. It made our heart race. It gave us butterflies. And so we have to remember that. And so that's what my book is going to do when it comes out with the solo project. My goodness, you've got a lot on your plate. Oh, man, mm-hmm. it's, it's exciting to listen uh, to your story. And as I mentioned, you know, uh, we're, we haven't gotten to as much of it as there is. I, I know yeah. there's a lot more there. You and I have chatted a little bit. Uh, I know your time's a little bit low. So we may have to have you on another time to fill in some of the other information. Would that be okay? Absolutely. I would love to come back. Uh, that would be great. He is uh, Jamal Silk, Mr. Me Too, Sylvester. He's got the books out. Remember the impact of influence. He's got another one on the way. That is uh, Dream Another Dream, both available on Amazon. Hey, thanks so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure to have you, and we look forward to having you again soon. Man, I look forward to being here. And just a, a, a real quick uh, a note, I'll send a link in the uh in the chat so that you could push it out to your listeners. Uh, we, because it's a collaborative book, if they go get it off of Amazon, then all the proceeds go to chip. And I love my brother. Uh, but if you're going to buy it based on what you heard from me, I want you to buy the book for me. I have the opportunity. I have my own link where you can buy the book for me and I, I can autograph and sign it uh, uh, for you and ship it to you. Nice. Very nice. Also, I don't want to forget that you work with youth. I want to mention you're a motivational speaker and you probably still have a pretty mean jump shot. Hey, uh, I do. <laughs> hey, thanks so much. I know you got to run, but uh, it was a total pleasure. And, uh, you know, good luck in what you're doing. Keep us updated on your travels and where you're going so we can continue to promote you and your good work. Thanks again. And uh, stay safe. All right, you too. Thank you. For today, Sean will be back next week and we'll start over. And uh, looking very much forward to doing more podcasts. This is number 51. As you know, we did 50 last week. So here's to our next 50. And we're off to a great start. And as always, I would like to thank my guest host, our Dean of Athletics, Sean Harris. Yay, yay. And the gentleman who makes us sound good each and every time we do podcasts, that is Brandon Peterson, our sound engineer. Beep, 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 beep. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you download your podcast and please leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us get the word out about Westcliff Athletics and we thank you for your support. And keep an eye out for the next podcast.